Good morning, church family. We've just completed a fairly long study through the book of Genesis. But before we move on, I want to spend one more Sunday answering some lingering questions that have been left unanswered. You see, the book of Genesis, and really the whole Bible, is the story of the line of promise. Through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we saw the line. Throughout all of the Old Testament, the line goes forward through the line of Judah, all the way to Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus is the main story of the Bible, of course. But after spending so much time with uh, the line of Jesus and the line of Judah, and we spent time with Joseph, I was left with the question, what became of the line of Joseph? We spent time with Joseph and with Judah, and Judah's the line of Jesus. So what, what happened to, to Joseph's family? We see in Genesis 48 that his family was left with this big promise that, that God's not done with Ephraim and Manasseh. So what became of that promise? How was that promise fulfilled? So this morning, I want to take time to look through the Bible and kind of take you on a journey from the Old Testament to the New Testament to see how this promise was fulfilled through Scripture, how Joseph's prophe- or Jacob's prophecy carried forward. And I want to show you a powerful message of restoration and redemption that's revealed through Scripture. My thesis this morning is that the story of Joseph's family is the story of how Jesus restores those who are lost. I hope you brought your Bible this morning. If not, there should be a Bible in the pews in front of you. We'll be in three different passages this morning. 1 Kings 11 and 12, Hosea 14, and then John 4. And in each of these chapters, I believe we'll see something about the family of Joseph as well as something about ourselves. So we'll be in 1 Kings 11 and 12, Hosea 14, and then John 4. And each one will reveal another piece of the story of the tribe, the family of Joseph, and what became of his descendants. But first, let's begin this morning by remembering Jacob's prophecy back in Genesis 48 that was just read for us. Jacob's prophesied that God would make the two half-tribes great, especially Ephraim. Now remember, Jacob adopted Joseph's sons into his own. There's something important about them. They have an Egyptian mother. So, as Damien explained for us a few weeks ago, it's, they're significant because they're the original grafting point of the nations into God's people. And they'll continue to be that. They are the place where we're, we're shown from the very beginning that God doesn't just have a plan for the Israelites, for, for Abraham's family, but for all of the nations to be blessed through Abraham. And that will continue through their line. There's foreshadowing that they're going to be significant. Something is important about Ephraim. So as we're looking at the the next passages, we'll ask ourselves this question, why is Ephraim significant? Is it just that they're going to have lots of land? Is it just that they're going to be populous? Or is there more to it than just that? And it's also worth noting that at the end of this passage, there's this odd statement where Jacob gives Joseph land back in Israel. They're not in Israel anymore, but the land that he conquered, he gives to his son Joseph. And says, Joseph, when your descendants eventually get to Israel, there's a piece of land that I want you to have. There's an area that I've established. My territory is going to go to your descendants. So that's going to come back later. So, So make a note of that as well, too. Now, our first stop on our journey is 1 Kings 11. And this takes place, this scene is set a little bit later on in the story. The nation of Israel has been established We heard Red, Joshua, where the nation took a vow and said, we will follow God. We're not going to follow all the idols of the other nations. We're leaving behind the idols in Egypt. 
We're not going to adopt the Canaanite gods. We will follow God. They made that vow before Joshua. And so they were established, and they immediately began to sin and worship the foreign gods. And God raised up judge after judge to discipline them, to bring them back to himself. And eventually there were kings. We saw there is Saul, and then after him is David, and then David's son, Solomon. And Solomon at first is a very wise and a very good king. But he begins to marry all of the women of all of the nations, and they turn his heart in his old age. In his old age, Solomon, the one who wrote Proverbs, is led astray by his wives and allows them to begin to build altars and places of offering to foreign gods. And so Solomon's heart is turned to foreign gods and to foreign idols. And this brings us to 1 Kings 11. We're introduced to a man named Jeroboam of the tribe of Ephraim, of the tribe of Joseph. And God has a special message and sends the prophet Ahijah to talk to him. Follow along as I read 1 Kings 11, uh, verses 30 through 39. 1 Kings 11, 30 through 39. Then Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it in 12 pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself 10 pieces. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you 10 tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David. And for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the god of the Sidonites, Cheremosh, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Amorites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David their father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David, my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand, and I will give it to you, ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you and shall reign over, you, over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And it will listen to all that I command you, and you will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, as David, my servant, did. I will be with you. And I will build you a sure house as I built for David. And I will give Israel to you. And I will affect, afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. So Jeroboam, the heir here of, of Joseph, is now being set up against Solomon and his son Rehoboam, the heir of Judah. Solomon and his line have seemingly failed. God has discipline for him. And he's stripping the tribes away and giving all of the tribes of Israel to Ephraim, to Joseph's line, under Jeroboam. And he makes him this great offer, right? He says, if you will worship me, if you will trust me, if I will be your God, I will establish you. I will establish the house of Joseph forever. Trust in me and I will give you the nation. Ten whole tribes will all be yours. Here is a place of blessing. You will be established just as David was, the great King David. You will be the next David, not Rehoboam, not the line of Judah. What an amazing offer. How could he resist an offer this good, right? Here he is. He's, being, he's going from, I am not a king at all, to, no, I'm going to be king of ten tribes. What a great offer. Well, we only have to wait one chapter to see how Jeroboam responds. Look in 1 Kings 12 with me. Uh, verses 25 through 28 were given Jeroboam's response to God's amazing offer to be the new king, to be the faithful king of Israel. 
How does the line of Joseph respond to the promise of God? Are they going to be faithful like Joseph was? Verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If the people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn against their Lord to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and he put the other in Dan. Jeroboam of the tribe of Joseph rejects God. And what sin does he go to? What idol does he go to? All the way back to the golden calves from, from the book of Exodus. He says, we're not going to worship God. We're going to worship our version of God. And he, he, he credits these calves that he just made with rescue them, rescuing them generations ago from Egypt. Can you hear the folly in that? Here's a God I just made up, and we're going to retcon it. We're going to go back and revise history like these calves were already here, that they were the ones who helped, not God. And so he, he distorts God and twists God. It's not just that he turns away from God to follow foreign idols, but he twists and perverts the very worship in God. In the following verses, he sets up a priesthood similar to the Levites, but not of the Levites. He sets up festivals similar to the Jewish festivals, but different, distinct enough. He slaps his own brand on there and covers up and perverts everything that should have been. And so, a tribe of Joseph becomes worshipers of the golden calf, worshipers of the bowels and the asterisks, worshipers of all of the foreign gods. And if, if you have a, a map in the back of your Bible, you can begin to see how absolutely absurd this is. Because Ephraim, Penuel, these cities, this is a close journey to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not a faraway city. It's nearby. Ephraim is bordering Judah. And so for them to go to Jerusalem and worship is an easy thing. It's a simple thing. And he says, stop going there. Stop making the short journey. Just stay here and worship here. And we'll worship gods from other nations. Other nations that have historically oppressed and attacked them. Other nations that are their enemies. Other nations whose false gods and idols demands all kinds of horrific sacrifices we'll soon learn. And so a perverse religion is established in Israel in the beginning. This is the beginning of the real tragedy of Ephraim. This is the tragedy of the, the, the descendants of Joseph. They reject God. They establish their new nation given to them by God. I feel like we've, we've seen this over and over again. As we study Genesis, a gift is given from God. God is kind. God is generous. He says, I will give you ten whole tribes. And how does he respond? Well, I'm not going to worship you. I'm going to do things my way. And I think there was an application here. And in, this is a sin that we see even in our own lives, even today. God is generous and kind to us and gives us things. And we turn against God. Why? The same reason Jeroboam does in verse 27. He wants religion he can control. He wants to be in control. He says, if we do things God's way and people go to Jerusalem, I might not be popular anymore. I might not be in control. I might not have fame. It's going to make the other guy look good, and I'm not going to let other people look good. I care about me. And so selfishness, a desire to be in control of religion, overtakes Jeroboam, and he leads the entire tribe against God. And I think this is a warning for us as we, we engage in our faith and in our religion and Christianity, that we do not take 
religion and begin to twist it and distort it and make it fit our needs. To say, I want a faith that works for me. I want a faith that lets me be popular with my friends. I want a faith that doesn't offend other people. This is the sin of Jeroboam. To make a religion in the image of God, but in a religion that's distorted, that never asks us to do anything, never requires repentance of sin, never requires sacrifice, never requires you to have a hard conversation with a loved one or a coworker. This is the sin of Jeroboam, and this is the sin that begins the doom and the tragedy of the family of Joseph. And sadly, during all of the many years, for 150 years, king after king in the northern kingdoms will begin to worship these foreign gods. And their, their tribes will be consolidated, um, oftentimes later in the minor prophets. Ephraim is used to describe the northern kingdoms because Ephraim and Manasseh absorb uh, migrating other tribes and they, they, they swell to include almost everybody. Joseph really does become the defining tribe of the northern kingdoms. And so you have the tribe of Joseph in the north and you have the tribe of Judah in the south. And the tribe of Joseph is defined by how much they hate and reject God. There's, there's a real tragedy here in the Old Testament of, of the man who was so faithful to God for so many years in the book of Genesis. His family is now turned completely against God. And as they begin to worship gods and practice uh, disobedience and sin, that defines them through the rest of the book of Kings and Chronicles until we reach the book of Hosea. And you see the Israelites in trying to appease the foreign nations and worship foreign gods, well, one of those foreign nations is the Assyrians, and they're rising and they're growing. And Israel's hoping that, hey, we share similar gods, we trade, we're friends. You're not going to hurt us, right? And so they're, they're hoping the Assyrians will leave them alone and be their friends, that they can placate them. But if, turn, if you would, to the book of Hosea. Hosea is sent during the reign of Jeroboam II. The Israel king just defined one of their very first king is Jeroboam, and there's a bunch of other kings, and towards the very end of it is Jeroboam II. They, they name one of their last kings after their first king. He's not a direct relation. So under Jeroboam II, Israel is still practicing under foreign idols and, and in denial about the Assyrian threat. So God raises up Hosea. And if you know anything about Hosea, you probably know chapter 1. God tells Hosea, take Gomer, the prostitute, as your wife. Na have children with her and name your children. Israel is not my people. I am not your God. You are going to be judged. And he gives his children names and he uses his wife to herald the message of judgment of God to the nation of Joseph's people. And he says, God has forsaken you because you have forsaken him. Now the book of Hosea goes through and judges this nation. So we learn very quick from the first chapter, Israel is still worshiping false idols. They're worshiping the Baals and they're worshiping the Astoreths. In chapter 4, we learn that they're engaging in cult prostitution. That they're selling their own children into, into prostitution. Their own daughters are being sold into prostitution. Can you imagine? They are child abusers. Then we learn in chapter 7 that they frequently harbor murderers. They harbor bandits. They have no problem with murder, with, with people who will seek to harm others. Lawlessness is fine in the land of Ephraim. Lawlessness is fine for their tribe. And if that's not bad enough, chapter 13, verse 2, we learn about how they worship that golden calf. They worship the golden calf by human sacrifice. 
So they're committing human sacrifices. They're selling their children into, into prostitution. They're, a, they're aiding in murder, and they consider theft no big deal, worshiping all of these foreign idols. They have become a horrific people. And so God says, I will take your friends, the Assyrians, and I will sell you into slavery. They are going to destroy your kingdom, and they are going to take you away. You have been judged. And, and is this not justice? Imagine if, if I were to put before you the tribe of, jo of Joseph and say, here, here is a man who has abused children, who has raped, who has committed theft, who has committed murder, who has committed human sacrifice. Who wants to have this man into their home? Well, none of us do. We would all look at that person and say, that is a man I want nothing to do with. That is a man who deserves to die. That is a man who deserves to be cut off forever. And so the tribe of Joseph deserves to be cut off forever. We can all look at that and say, justice is they're done. Justice is that Hosea ends in chapter 13 with their judgment. But 13 is not the last chapter, is it? There's one more chapter in Hosea, chapter 14. So look with me, if you would, at chapter 14, verses 1 through 4. After all of these horrible crimes have been exposed, after their judgment is brought down, what does God say in the final chapter? Hosea 14, 1 through 4. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with your words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. God is not done with Joseph and with his family. We would be done with them by now. We would have probably been done a few hundred, a hundred years beforehand. This had gone on for so long. And yet God says, I am not done with them. Their wickedness deserves punishment, yes, but I am not done with the family of Joseph. And this is, this is amazing to me that God can look at these horrible people, horrible people like myself, horrible people like all of us, and say, I am not done with it. I am not finished with my story. Look at verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. Where is their healing coming from? It's coming from God. God will be the one to restore them. They're not going to be able to make themselves right with God. And God knows this. They know this. God is not going to be appeased by their actions. He's going to be healed appeased because he's going to be the one who brings the healing. I want you to notice the verb tenses in verse 4. He says, I will love them freely, future tense, for my anger has turned from them, past tense. Do you notice that's reversed how we think it should be? Normally we would say, after you're healed, then I will love you. After your life is back together, after the restoration, then I will love you again. I will love you after you get your act together and apologize for what you've done to me. That's how we talk. But God puts the verb tenses backwards. He says, I do love you because I will heal you. You catch that? That's powerful. And th this is what makes our God good. This is what makes our God different and holy because God knows he will heal Joseph. Despite every horrible sin that we've talked about that they've committed, everything that's been exposed for 13 chapters now, God says, I will pay 
for that apostasy. I will pay for your treason. I will pay for your unfaithfulness. I will pay for your murder and child abuse. I will make you clean again. You will be my people again. Because of me, because what I will do to heal, not because of what you will do to atone. And God is so sure that he already loves them. His anger has already turned for them because he is going to do the work. And this is our God. And in verse 8, he says, Oh, Ephraim, what have you to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. God still loves Joseph's family. God still loves them. Despite everything they've done, God still loves them. And I think this picture of the gospel is so applicable to us today. Because if you've ever felt that you've out-sinned God, if you've ever felt that you've, you've, you're too far from God, or that what you've done is too evil, look at the Ephraimites. Look at the tribe of northern kingdoms. Here are the words of God as he says, but I can heal what you have done. It's not too far. You've not run away from me. You have not separated yourself so far that I cannot reach you. God will and can save the, Joseph's, the family of Joseph. And this is his promise to them. This is his promise that he is going to be there for the tribe of Joseph, that their story is not over. But first, they must endure the punishment. And so as the book of Hosea ends shortly afterwards, the Assyrians do sweep through and destroy the nation. They're drug away into slavery. They, they endure the punishment. And it's an important note for us, I think, here, that playing games and placating unbelievers doesn't result in a long-term reward. It results in slavery. They thought that they could make friends with the Assyrians if the Assyrians would leave them alone. This is a danger that the church faces today. If we just stop talking about the stuff that offends our culture, if we just stop talking about sin, stop talking about gender issues, or stop talking about this or that or the other, maybe our culture will just leave us alone and let us do our own thing. It doesn't work for Israel, and it wouldn't work for us today. We are called to preach faithfully the Bible and preach faithfully the gospel, regardless of what the culture and the world says around us. They thought that by, by not talking about the things of God and rejecting the things of God, that they would be safe. And that was their own undoing. That was their own danger. Because when God lifted his hand of protection, the Assyrians swept over them and they were destroyed. So, by the time we reach the New Testament... After the Assyrians have taken the northern kingdoms away, there are two major areas that are resettled. The, the area of Galilee and the area of Samaria. So the area of Galilee is located in the historical area of Naphtali, Zebulun, and Manasseh. If you're comparing your maps in your Bible, you'll notice they're the upper region. And they're resettled predominantly by Manasseh and a lot of the other tribes, the descendants. Though they're all able to still trace their Jewishness. On the other hand... The Ephraimites resettle their traditional land, and it's called Samaria. They're now called the Samaritans. You see, the Ephraimites have intermarried with the Assyrians. And so while the Jews of Judah and the Jews of Jerusalem will recognize Galileans, okay, you guys are still Jews. The Manassites are still Jews. The Ephraimites are the Samaritans now, and they are not recognized because they have intermarried. Those guys have gone too far. We do not want Samaritans anywhere near Jerusalem. Don't come into our cities. Don't come into our towns. You are dogs to us. You are worse than dogs. And so the Ephraimites, even as they settle their own historic land and finally get back into the promised land after their time in Assyrian captivity, they're, they're rejected. They're pushed aside. And this, this question hangs over them. Has God forgotten us? 
Were we too evil? The Jews have all rejected us. All of the other Jews no longer see us as their brothers anymore. And, and we've heard the promise that a Messiah is going to come from the line of Judah. But if the line of Judah hates us and thinks we're scum, thinks we're dogs, are we going to be left behind? Is the coming Messiah only for Judah? Or will the coming Messiah remember the tribe of Joseph, the tribe of Joseph who's now separated and up in the northern kingdoms. And so this is the weight, the question that's hanging in the air as we approach the New Testament. Look with me at John 4, what I hope is a familiar passage. John chapter 4. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, you'll notice that John, our author, points out that this city is located on the land that Jacob gave Joseph. When did that happen? All the way back in verse 48. I, I told you that was going to be important. And so this, what, what John is doing here is saying, hey, think about Genesis 48 as you read this passage. Because Jesus is on the historic land that is connected to the promises and the blessings that Jacob also gave to Joseph's sons. He gave Joseph land and he gave Joseph's sons a blessing. And so Jesus has come to the land, and now there's this question. Whatever happened to that blessing? Has it been lost? So Jesus may, John makes that connection for us to help us see that. But Jesus isn't just coming to the land to rest. He's here to meet somebody. He's come at a specific hour because he knows somebody is going to be there at that specific hour. And he's there to meet her. Look at the Samaritan woman now with me in verses 7 through 10. A woman of Samaria came to drink water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And so Jesus points out to the Samaritan woman that he is the one who has true water. But first, he asks her for a drink. He honors her. He respects her. Nobody else in the town would ask her for a drink of water, but Jesus does. And I think it's so important that Jesus respects and honors the woman at the well by asking for her help. He starts the conversation by asking for her help. He doesn't walk into town and immediately start lecturing her, telling her how bad her life is and telling, demanding she repent. He asks her for a drink of water. He recognizes her humanity. He recognizes her dignity as a woman made in the image of God. And he recognizes, hey, I, I would like you to help me get some water. And so he respects her. And, and she's taken aback by this kindness. And so he's able to begin to, to share the gospel with her and to point her, to point her towards himself. And, and his message here of, I would give you living water if you will ask it of me. This is, in a sense, a parallel of the messages we heard for Jeroboam the first and Jeroboam the second. Go back with me to 1 Kings in your mind to what was the offer was to Jeroboam, right? 
If you will trust me, I will give of you the nations. You will have an established kingdom forever if you will only trust me. And now Jesus is saying here, if you will trust me, I will give you water for all eternity, established living water, if you will just trust me. Do you hear the parallel of the message? The message to the tribe of Joseph never changes throughout the Bible. It's trust in the Lord and God will be your salvation. God will be your sustainer. God will be the one to carry you forward. And so Jesus is bringing the same message that they've rejected over and over and over again back. He's not changing the script. He's changing maybe the verbiage, but not the script. He's still offering them. If you will trust me, I will be your God. I will be your living water. Now, after this, Jesus reveals a, a, a problem that she has. Look with me at verses 16 through 20. Jesus says to her, go call your husband and come. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right to say, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship. Jesus points out that she's had five husbands, and the one she's with is not her husband. Why is that significant? Significant because she perfectly represents the tribe of Joseph. She's perfectly representing the Ephraimites, her people. They have worshipped God after God after God. As we learn in Hosea, they've gone after lover after lover after lover and not been loved in return. There's always been unfaithfulness. They loved the gods of the Assyrians and they got invaded by the Assyrians. They loved the golden calf, but it was a dead idol that brought them nothing but blood sacrifice. They loved the, the asterisks and the bowels. They loved these foreign gods and, in, and received nothing in return but grief. And now Ephraim is here hoping they can worship God. You hear from this question. We want to be able to worship God, but we can't even go to Jerusalem and worship God the way he wants to. The husband she wants, she doesn't have. The, the God that Ephraim wants, the God of, of their forefathers, they don't have anymore because they're no longer in covenant. They've lost the covenant of God. They've lost the husband they should have. And so she perfectly represents the, the entire tribe. And she is the one that Jesus is going to take to herald the message. And here is again another parallel to Hosea. Hosea used his wife, used this woman of ill repute, to be the herald of judgment. And Jesus takes this woman of ill repute, and she is the herald of restoration. And so Jesus is paralleling what the prophet did all of those years before. But before that, he's going to answer her question. You see, her question is, how do we get back to Jerusalem? How do we convince the other Jews to like us again and to let us in so we can worship God? But listen to what Jesus says. He doesn't answer the question the way she thinks. He says in verse 21, Woman, believe me that the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know for the salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship their Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So in her mind, it's how do we get back to the old status quo? How do we get access to the means of God? Missing the point entirely. The problem of Ephraim, the problem of the family of Joseph, is not that they don't have access to Jerusalem. It's that they're missing God. They're missing God himself. They need to be worshiping God in spirit and truth. And that is the time that has come now. 
They're, they're missing the gospel for the ritual. They want to be in Jerusalem, but they need to be in the presence of the Lord. And so Jesus gently corrects her thinking. He says, stop trying to get back to Jerusalem. Stop trying to get back to an, an older status quo where everything felt okay. And get back to the Lord. Worship God in spirit and truth. This is the gospel. A relationship with God is what saves us. Not finding our way back to Jerusalem. Not putting on a show for people. And so Jesus is not here to clean up her life. He's not here to re-earn her earthly status. He's here to help her make her life right with God. Jesus doesn't come into our lives to, to clean up our act, to help us get to a status quo that we're, we're comfortable and happy with. Jesus comes into our lives as our king to make us right before God, to pay for our sins, not to cover them up, to pay for our sins in full, to restore the apostasy, as Hosea said, to cover, to pay, to remove, paid on the cross, done, finished, so that we stand before God, made right, made whole. And this is what Jesus is doing for this woman. He says, I will be the living water. I will be with you forever. And this is the gospel. And friends, if you don't know the gospel, if you haven't encountered Jesus, Jesus isn't calling you to clean up your life. He isn't saying, if you clean up your life, then I will love you. He says, I love you because I died for you. And if you follow me, I will make you right before God. And, and his love is not waiting for us to be good enough. His love is already here. His love was on the cross 2,000 years ago. God's love, love came first and then came the healing. And in order, we would never have predicted. And so this, this is the gospel that Jesus gives the woman. This is the gospel now that she heralds into her own city. She goes back into Samaria. She's the first one into, in, to, to lead the way now into Joseph and say, tribe of Joseph, tribe of Ephraim, our Messiah is here, and here is his message. How do they respond? Look with me at verses 39 through 42. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything that I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is not because of what you said that we believe. We have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is the Savior of the world. They get it. They get who Jesus is. And after two days, he departs for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they had too had gone to the feast. So Ephraim, the, the first half-tribe, the tribe that was prophesied, is brought back in. And they, as a tribe, embrace Jesus. They say, Jesus, you are our Messiah. This is the message. We want to follow God. And just like we heard Red and Joshua, they're not going to be able to follow God by their own abilities. But they're going to follow God by the spring of living water that is Jesus by Jesus' strength, by the Holy Spirit, they'll be able to be faithful to him. And so Jesus restores the half-tribe of Ephraim. And he's not done. He goes to Galilee to see his, his childhood friends, to see the people he grew up with, the people who've already rejected him once. And now he's going back, and they're going to hear him a second time. And this time, many of them are going to believe. And he's going to restore Manasseh as well. And so Ephraim and Manasseh, the whole tribe of Joseph, is critical and pivotal to being part of the early first church. Jesus, the, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, rescues 
the tribe of Joseph. Both, both halves are rescued and restored. And so Jesus has gone personally to them. And this, this answers our question. Did God abandon Joseph even after all the horrible wickedness they did? No. Jesus himself personally went to them. He personally goes to rescue them. He says, I am not abandoning Joseph's descendants. I am not abandoning Jacob's descendants. I am going to get them. And so he goes to the well and he gets them and he goes. And Jesus loves them and cares for them. And he brings them into, his, into the beginning of his church and builds his church with, Galatian, with the Galileans and the Ephraimites. The Samaritans are become part of his church. And there's, there's this beautiful truth here. And, and this really is the message of the tribe of Joseph, that this family line who rejects God, who chooses sin, even horrific sin, God answers Jacob and Joseph's prayer. If you remember, as we study the last few weeks, Jacob and Joseph both had great hope in how they were buried, that their generations would be God's people. Remember, as we talked about the bones and the burial ceremonies, both Jacob and Joseph's ceremonies represented that God is going to be, our pe God is going to be the God of our children and future generations. They trusted God. God would look after their children, their children's children, their children's children's children. And God was faithful. And he sent Jesus in and answered the prayers of Jacob and Joseph. And they didn't deserve that other chance, but God, in his love, sent Jesus to rescue his lost people. Now, I want to make three conclusions or three applications this morning as we conclude. I want to conclude by saying, what can we take away from this beautiful story that stretches out throughout the Bible, the story of Joseph's descendants? How do we begin to apply that to our own lives? I want to give you three applications. The first application is that we can trust the salvation of our own family to God. Our brothers and sisters, our parents and grandparents, our own children, our uncles, our aunts, whoever it is, our cousins, our own family are in God's hands. We can trust God for their salvation. Jesus goes back to Galilee knowing that his childhood friends, that his own brothers were there. Jesus knew what it was like to have unsaved family members. He had unsaved family members. And he went back to them even after they didn't get it. And he went back over and over again. He went back to Galilee to preach to them. And they heard him over and over again. He knows the pain of your own family not getting it, not wanting to follow him. So recognize that God can and will answer your prayers as you pray for lost loved ones. I want to encourage you with this, that, that as you pray and try to engage with your loved ones, oftentimes they may not want to listen to you. But God can put other people in their lives who they may want to listen to. And, and as you witness to coworkers or friends or casual acquaintances, very likely they may have saved family members who are praying for them. And you are the answer to their prayers. So whatever you do, don't believe the lie that you're somebody's only hope. You are not the only hope. Jesus is the only hope, not you. So God can use other people to help reach your lost loved ones. And God can use you to help reach other people's lost loved ones. We all come alongside one another. This is why prayer is so important. Recognizing that God is moving and doing things and enacting a plan on a different timeline on us, in a different way than us, in a method that we maybe wouldn't have chosen. And so we trust God with the salvation of our family members, recognizing that he's going to be the one to do the work in his own time. 
And I, I think we can learn a lot from how Jesus, as I said, talked to the woman at the well. He was so loving and kind towards her, treating her with dignity, saying, will you give me a drink, and, and putting him pl- himself in a place of vulnerability with her. He didn't come in there, like I said, and just start dropping truth bombs on her. He didn't do a drive-by sermon. He came into her life. He asked her questions. He heard what was burning in her mind and, and, and got to know her, and that's why she was so willing to listen. And if Jesus is kind in his evangelism, then we're called to be kind in ours. Brothers and sisters, we're not called to be jerks. We're not called to do social media, blast out the truth, drop bombs on people, and run away evangelism. We're called to love and care about people. We're called to show compassion the same way Jesus showed compassion. To care about people's situations. To care about what people are going through. To get involved in their lives. To to speak truth in a way that is enticing. We're not called, as I said, to, to, to cover up or to hide the hard parts, the difficult parts, the sin parts, the culturally inappropriate parts. But we are called to speak in a way and to live in a way that is kind and compassionate and demonstrates the way that Jesus pursued us. So I'd encourage you in your evangelism and sharing your faith with others and you know, loving your family members who are hard to love, loving your coworkers or classmates who are hard to love. Love them as Christ loved you first. Show them kindness. Show them compassion. And from your kindness and compassion, share the gospel. And, and this, is, this is the way that Jesus preaches, and I think this is the way that we can begin to preach to others as well. The second application that I have for us is that we can trust our children and future generations to God just as Jacob and Joseph did. Though our children sin, though they rebel, though they reject, after all the consequences, God can still save them and bring them back to himself. As a parent, it's a terrifying thought that someday my kids can outrun my influence. My kids can reject me. They can reject my teaching. They can distance themselves from me. And even if my kids do stay faithful, I'm eventually going to likely pass on before they do. My kids will have to go on past my own lifetime. There will be a time where I won't be able to speak into my kids' lives very likely. And as a parent, that's terrifying. As a parent, that makes you nervous. Because I I can't control my children. They're going to grow up into their own people. But as I know God, I know that they will never outrun God. And God, as I pray, will never be done with my family line. And here I find my hope and my confidence the same way that Joseph and Jacob found confidence in their line, knowing that God can save no matter what happens, no matter what sin and rebellion, no matter what consequences, God can redeem my family, my children, my children's children after them. They are in God's hands. Now, this is why it's so important for us to raise our children as parents, for the parents in the room, for us to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We're not called to just teach our children, pray a prayer after dad. Only do what dad says, you know, fear dad, fear mom. No, in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Our calling is to teach our children to have a real relationship with God, not just do what we say and, you know, sit up straight and listen when I say do whatever I tell you. No, we want our children to have a relationship with God because salvation is in God's hands, not mom and dad's hands. And as scary as that as a dad, I have to recognize God has said he is going to be the one to deal with my children, not me. Their souls, I can trust to him. And so we point our children to what a real relationship looks like. This is why it's so important that children growing up hear their parents pray. This is why it's so important that that children hear their parents repent and, and admit to their own sin. 
And this is why, for those of you in the room who are not parents, it's so important that our children of the parents come around you and, and hear you pray, hear you confess sin. Of a parent who doesn't allow their children to ever see repentance, who never sees their mom and dad being loved by their church family or loving on their church family when it's hard, does a great disservice to the soul of their children. It's so important that our kids see Christianity, that they see Christ through the eyes of relationship, not just as something we have to do for a couple hours to get out of the way on Sunday, to appease dad for 18 years until I can get out of the house and do whatever I want. And so we, we pour into our kids, we point them to, as Jesus did at the well, a real relationship in spirit and truth. And so this is how we're called to love our children. Let our faith be real in our families and let God do the work of saving your children through the Holy Spirit. Finally, I want to encourage you to pray for those in the far country. Friends and family members, those who have fallen away from the faith, those who made a profession, said, I want to be a Christian. But like those people back in Joshua, they said, I want to follow God forever. And now they've turned and they've rejected God. There are, there are people, maybe in your own family, people you've known from this church or from other churches who have who've gone into the far country, who have abandoned their love. They said I would follow, they would follow God forever, and now they no longer follow God. I want to encourage you this morning to pray for those people. Pray, love. If you have ways to reconnect, if you have ways to speak truth into their life, never give up on people. Because though they run far away, God, Jesus is the good shepherd can run faster than they can. He can heal the deepest wounds. If Jesus can heal the apostasy of the Ephraimites, all those horrible crimes, he can heal our friends and our family members who have rejected the faith. And if they run and they cut us off, it, it, estrangement's hard. We all know how hard estrangement is when family members or friends won't even talk to you anymore. Though they cut us off, they can never escape God. And therein lies our hope. So if, if you've lost contact, keep praying for them. Don't ever stop praying because God can speak into their life. He knows every hiding place. He knows every place that, a, that an angry sheep will go, that a wounded sheep will go. And Jesus can heal apostasy fully. So pray for them. And by all means, check on those who are stumbling and falling behind. If, if you see your friend or somebody in this church or somebody you know who's missing Sunday after Sunday, excuse after excuse, and seems to be withdrawing and growing cold. Don't wait for somebody else to notice. Don't let it be somebody else's problem. Go after your brother. Go after your sister. Love them enough to say, are you okay? Are you simply just sick all the time because it's flu season? Or is there something spiritual going on? Are you hurting? Can I love you? Can I be Jesus' hands and feet to you? Have compassion on those around you who are stumbling, who are hurting, who are in a difficult season. I'd encourage you, let us be Christ's hands and feet. Let us love one another so that our friends, so that our brothers and sisters don't stumble. This is something we all can do for one another. Let us love each other enough to hold each other accountable. God works over years and generations, even across entire lifetimes as we see. Allow His timeline, His grand scope, to, to overrule your own timeline. Pray day by day, hoping and trusting in God. We so want God to do things this month, this year, as soon as possible. But the story God's telling is often longer than that. So don't be discouraged. There are hundreds of thousands of hopeless moments in the story of Ephraim, in the story of Joseph's family, where it looks like God has well and truly abandoned them, that there's no more hope. 
But God does not let their story end in sadness. He steps in, and Jesus builds his church with the Samaritans and the Galileans. Displaced Jews are the very foundation of the first century church. And so our faith is built on their foundation. Our church is built on the church that they had. And we continue to preach the very same hope that God gave to the tribe of Joseph all those years ago. We preach hope and rescue of the lost until Jesus comes again. Pray with me. Father, thank you that you did not abandon Joseph, that you did not abandon his descendants as they justly deserved. We thank you for your compassion, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't abandon me, that you didn't abandon my family, that you didn't abandon each and every one of us. Despite our sins, you loved us first. You sent your son to the cross and you have healed our sin fully. You've paid the price. You have atoned to us righteousness so that we may be made right with God. Help us, Lord, to never give up on anyone. Help us, Lord, to pray fervently to love others as you have loved us. Help us, Lord, to be compassionate as Jesus is compassionate, to be patient as we're called to be patient, to look every day anew, knowing that there is always hope in our Lord. Thank you, Lord, for never giving up on us. Thank you, Lord, for the sweet grace of the cross. The blessed name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.